Welcome to the Unconventional Path, entrepreneurship and innovation stories and ideas. Hi, I'm Bala Musitz, coming to you from upstate New York. I am a former three-time entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and business school professor. And I'm Mike Wasserman, professor of international management at the Münster University of Applied Sciences in Münster, Germany. Thanks for joining us today. You know, when Bela and I were both on the faculty at Clarkson University a few years ago, we had lots of interesting conversations about how two of our favorite topics, innovation and entrepreneurship, are constantly evolving. We do this over coffee or lunch as time allowed. And then about two years ago, I moved to Germany, and shortly after that, Bela retired. But Bela had this great idea to continue these conversations in the form of a podcast. I was skeptical of the idea. I actually thought it was a horrible idea. But we've done over 70 episodes since, and we've had a great time, haven't we, Bela? Boy, we sure have. And, uh, you know, we really like this. I really enjoy doing it every week. Uh, So I hope our listeners come and join us as well as we talk with interesting entrepreneurs to share their stories and ideas. Our goal is to bring you individuals who have taken the unconventional path to find happiness in life and at work. One of the key elements of this podcast is to interview business founders we can all identify with. Our guests have included coffee roasters, software developers, business consultants, and restaurant owners. We want their stories to inspire you to say, hey, I can do that, and then just maybe give you the push to start your own entrepreneurial adventure. But before we begin, we'd like to share with you that our podcast is brought to you in part by the law firm of Phillips Lytle LLP. This is a sponsorship that makes a lot of sense to us. Bela, you know this firm well, don't you? Boy, I sure have. I've worked with the key entrepreneurship practice partners at Phillips Lytle for over 20 years. Their nationally recognized attorneys take an entrepreneurial approach to legal matters, and they have a long history of success with startup businesses. Phillips Lytle is my go-to team for guiding startup businesses down the path to success, and we thank them for the continued support of the Unconventional Path podcast. And next up, today's guest is Adam Robinson co-founder and CEO of Get Emails. Hello, listeners. Today, I'm here with Adam Robinson. He has a super interesting background, uh, has started several companies, uh, and is just a great entrepreneur. And um, so welcome to the show, Adam. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Yeah, thanks. And uh, so, Adam, let me ask you a question. If you're at a social event and uh, someone comes up to you and says, hey, Adam, uh, what do you do? How do you answer that question? You know, I think it depends on who it is, but most people, I tend to say I'm in tech and, you know, with this, we, we just launched a new startup and it's, it's a little bit strange what it does and no one's really heard of it. So I tend to say we build software that helps businesses do a bunch of different stuff with email. And if I know that they're tech savvy, I'll go into a lot more detail than that. Excellent. Um, but that's generally how I started off. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> what is this new company, Adam? So the new company is called Get Emails. And what Get Emails does is you put our script on your website and we can identify up to 35% of the anonymous traffic that visits your site. And we can pass you full customer records uh, of people that didn't actually fill out any forms. So you're able to market to them over email or direct mail. Yeah. We give you first name, last name, email address, postal record, um, the landing page they were on, 
uh, and it's great data. People are having very good results with it. Um, it's a very powerful tool. It's only legal in the U.S. because in the USA, email marketing is actually contrary to popular belief. Legally, it's opt out and not opt in. Mm-hmm. GDPR in Canada, um, that's opt in. So um, it's not allowed there at all. Got and it. then the next question people ask is like, well, there's a bunch of you know coming regulation, the CCPA, the California thing, the Vermont thing, and uh, the misconception is that <clears throat> since a lot in that regulation is similar to GDPR, the misconception is that it's identical to GDPR, but it's still not opt-in email marketing. I mean, the, the CCPA, the California thing, is about disclosure to customers and giving them avenues to to see the data that you're collecting and delete it from your records and all that stuff. And it, it literally has nothing to do with, with opt-in. So... Okay, um, so you used a, a few acronyms there. Could you uh, uh, explain oh, those dear. to our listeners? <laughs> Sorry about that. I'm so deep in it. I, I, I just can never catch myself before I say all that stuff. So um, CCPA <clears throat> means California Consumer Protection Act. Um, GDPR, I'm not even sure what GDPR stands for, but I think GDPR is ubiquitous enough where people know what I'm talking about. It's the, the, the basically the clampdown that Europe did on data that went into effect last year. Um, you know, you basically have to have the, the, the relevance to someone doing email marketing is you need, if you're going to send email marketing to Europeans, you need to have explicit opt-in and you need to have the record of when that happened. Yeah. Yes. That's the most salient point. Got it. Uh, so everybody had to change all their sign-up forms and stuff to to make them GDPR compliant. Okay. And so uh, for your new company here, Get Emails, uh, who's your typical customer? So <clears throat> we just launched November first, and um, you know we're still figuring out exactly who the best customer is, and mm-hmm. it's it's been confusing because I've thought it was one avatar and then changed to another and it changed to another. Um, so. The, the strong use cases are um, publishers and media companies. That's, that's a great use case. So a really good example that's easy to understand is um, one of our customers, Marin Magazine. They're a print and digital um, magazine that basically publishes stuff about real estate and stuff happening in Marin County, California. They have 33,000 email subscribers and they sell their reach to advertisers in the Marin area, meaning an advertiser in the Marin area pays Marin Magazine uh, $100 per thousand contacts on their email list to do a newsletter takeover and just blast. Um, We sell them email addresses of people on their website for 250 cost per thousand. So they pay that back in two and a half cents. Mm -hmm. And it's cheaper than their next cheapest source of, of an email address by like 80% or something like that. So they love it because they're constantly fighting this attrition battle. Um, you know, everybody's fighting this attrition battle to an extent. Uh, once you get to a certain size of your email list, it's just the nature of lists is that people unsubscribe and email addresses go bad. And once your list hits a certain size, it's just really hard to keep up with that. So publishers are a great use case. E-commerce is also a fantastic use case. Um, and I mean, that's pretty self-explanatory. It's just people are on 
you know, a, a, a brand's website and for whatever reason, they don't either buy something or sign up to receive emails. Uh, it's just a great compliment to the, the, the overall marketing effort and retargeting effort that an e-commerce brand is doing to also send them, um, you know, thanks for coming by the site. Here's 15% off site wide. Uh, we had a, a jewelry brand, like a local jewelry seller in Manhattan called Frida Rothman that used get emails for the seven days going into Black Friday. And they had a 10 times return on investment from our emails on Black Friday. Granted, people go crazy on Black Friday. Right. Those results probably wouldn't, you know, generally speaking, um, we think that you need to analyze results over like 60 days with this because just the nature of the emails of someone who didn't actually raise their hand to, to get marketed to or buy something, it's just farther up the funnel. And rules of marketing basically say, you know, you need to build trust with people before they'll buy from you. So right. <clears throat> that's why we say, you know, send them a little welcome series, send them something that says, thanks for coming by the site, offer them a little discount, but um, then put them on your email list and evaluate the program over, over, over 60 days. Um, and a third use case is actually events. Um, two of our biggest customers are Spartan races. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. I They're sure have. Yeah. 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 And, and Houston livestock show and rodeo. And they both love it. Um, you know, I would, I, I would have, it makes sense. They're selling tickets to these events and there's a deadline. And so there's, there's like a couple, um, you know, different sort of forces that kind of like black Friday work for that one brand, um, working for these, these, these event guys. Um, and an interesting thing that Spartan's doing is they're actually doing triggered direct mail with the postal addresses we're giving them. So somebody visits their website, they have this thing set up to where the next day a postcard goes out to that person with a discount code on it um, using our system, right. which is pretty Right. So if I understand this correctly, in, instead of the sort of alternative of buying uh, list, email list from you know various different uh, organizations that, that collect those and resell them, uh, and you have the problem of aging, et cetera, you're doing this on a daily or weekly basis and you're sending me uh, a, a, a set of emails and contact information for people who visited my website. So it's daily and, and okay. hopefully by we're, we're working with our vendors in the back end. Hopefully sometime in the second quarter, you'll have the option to do it real time, which is incredibly powerful depending on what kind of emailing you're doing. Yeah. Um, and the thing that I will say, so I also own another company that I started when I got into tech called Robly email marketing. And it's an, e an email service provider, which is like MailChimp. Um, you learn a lot about deliverability, which is, the art and science of getting an email to actually show up in someone's inbox. <clears throat> the so there are a series of ethical questions that pop up when I start describing what we do. Um, there are legal questions that pop up when I, when I start describing what we do legally, it's impossible for someone to argue that what we're doing is illegal. Mm -hmm. Ethically, ethically, it's very possible for someone to say, look, uh, you know, I believe in the, 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 the fact of the matter is the reason we all think that email is opt-in in the U.S. is because the email ecosystem has promoted that so heavily. And there's a lot of organizations that take the stance and say, we're only going to send email marketing to people who've opted in for it because 
We want to have respect for the consumer. We want to have respect for our subscribers. Um, I will tell you from my experience of running an ESP, uh, the most important thing in email marketing is deliverability. And deliverability is almost correlation one with engagement. Um, Gmail doesn't care where you got your list. What's going to make them mad is if you hit a bunch of spam traps, you have horribly low engagement and you have high complaints, mm-hmm. right? So the problem with buying lists is there is, and <laughs> look, we've all bought lists before. There is almost no place that you can buy a list that will not get you. There is a very high probability that you will have deliverability problems if you buy lists. Right, <clears throat> right, yep. <clears throat> Amazingly, with this technology, it is, you know, we're probably sourcing the data from the same place as these guys who are putting these lists together and saying they're interest-based or whatever. I don't know where they're getting their data, but I would imagine it's coming from like the same sort of like lead generation type of partnerships. But just due to the fact that these people were actually on your website, it's so much more targeted than any other way of segmenting people and selling you yeah. data. Look, it's, it's, it's so it's so recent that yeah. I mean, so I thought so we launched this thing November 1st. I thought that we get like half the open rate of somebody who opted in. What's actually happening is we're seeing 20 plus percent, which in most cases is actually higher than any, you know, that's that's higher than an e-commerce right. brands big newsletter, you know. Uh, and, and, and it's just amazing. I can't, I can't believe that it, that, you know, the sales pitch was good. If we were like, look, they're not as good as they're, they're not as good as opt-ins, but you're paying a buck for opt-ins and we're selling you emails for a quarter. So if they're half as good, the math still works, but they're actually more engaged, you know, which it, it's, it's phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> it, 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 to me, as you're, as you're describing this, it sounds no different than, you know, I visit a, a website, uh, a car dealer's website. <clears throat> and, uh, then I noticed the next uh, day and for the next week or month, I keep getting car car ads popping up in various different things that I do. So this just fundamentally is similar, I think in my own mind, but takes the form of an email instead of an ad. Is that, is that sort of correct? That's exactly right. And instead of paying Facebook and Google, for multiple clicks from the same person, you own this email address forever. So until they unsubscribe, got it. You can email them as much as you want, and the thing costs you a quarter. Got it. So, Adam, so most businesses, most businesses yeah. can make that work. And, yeah. and I just want to add one more thing: it's it's not a great B two B tool because the nature of how the stat is collected, it's all free mail addresses: Gmail, Hotmail, Yahoo, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and it's also more, you know, I would generally describe e-commerce and events and publishers as a higher reach, lower conversion rate effort than a B2B. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's kind of what this tool is. It's like, you're never going to get hundred percent accurate with this type of data, but it's, it's great data for the, the conversion rates that e-commerce and publishers and events expect. You yeah. Know? Um, I think B2B probably expects much higher and salespeople and all that stuff. So um, just wanted to add that. Yeah, perfect. 
So where did where did your inspiration for this come from? <laughs> oh my goodness! So that's a uh, that's you know this. Do you just want me to like? How did I get into this whole mess to start with? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Just go just wherever you want. So yeah. so I I graduated college in 2003 from Rice University. Uh, my best friend was had a summer internship at Goldman Sachs, and he's like in sales and trading he's like you got to come up here you'd love the environment you know i'm an athlete and just liked play basketball in college and and and, and like this sort of testosterone turbocharged type of environment and um i got a job at lehman brothers as a credit default swap trader and you know they made a movie about this job like the big right. short that's right yeah. it, was, it was it was fantastic for it was one of these situations where those credit default swaps like it was an afterthought um when we started. So they gave it to all these young guys. And then all of a sudden the financial system blew up and it was because of this stuff. And so like these, you know, we were like 25 and in the center of the universe and just absolutely killing it. It was so interesting. And, and we had way too much responsibility on stuff. Um, and the, even more interesting than that, uh, I, I moved into this apartment with these guys in Tribeca who were starting a website called Vimeo at the same time I was starting at, at, at Lehman Brothers. And I watched that thing go from like wireframes to, I mean, I think at one point it was like a top 10 website in the internet. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, um, yeah. <clears throat> so, um, you know, I got this bug to be an entrepreneur and, um, you know, just caught a great wave trading. I'd, I'd saved enough money to where um, I, I was just like, you know, uh, I'm just going to give this tech thing a shot. Like the market that I was trading after the financial crisis, we had a couple of good years, but then they just like the government really clamped down on regulation and it was shrinking and like shrinking environments are just not fun to be a part of. I mean, at all. So, uh, I started making a bunch of bad investments and stuff and, you know, just trying to get involved with people who were, who were starting companies and, um, I, I did like five kind of like chunky bets and lo and behold, like, like one of them works. Uh -huh. My brother was also an entrepreneur and, um, he was using this, this product for, he has an old world business and he used the internet for it. He salvaged and refurbished, uh, circuit breakers actually. And he was using this product for customer reviews and email marketing called rate point uh -huh. in 2012. This guy, the CEO, Neil Creighton, he had raised 25 million bucks and um, they shut it down in a week. They basically sent out an email to all their customers and they said, download your data. Um, this thing's going offline in seven days. So my brother's like, man, it's weird. This was a useful product. I know this guy spent a ton of money acquiring customers. You're looking for, you know, you're looking for something to do. Let's see if we can like build this software on the cheap and then go find his customers. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure... I probably wouldn't do that now knowing what I know, but it sounded like a really good idea at the time. <laughs> certainly better than any, certainly better than anything else I was working. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which ended up being just a bunch of zeros pretty much. Uh, and we, which I don't think is abnormal. Um, so the, the funny thing is, so uh, I'm try, trying, I'm trying right now to like try to explain my mental state coming out of this trading job the level of excitement about like becoming this tech guy and the false confidence that doing well in finance gives you uh -huh. uh, about anything you can do in the world. Cause like you've just like 
made so much more money than all your friends and, and you're working at this super high profile thing and everything's in the news, you know, it's just, yes. it's like, you know, and, and, and this, uh, a way that I like to describe it is like, you know, an average finance guy, I think, I believe this. If you walk them into like a, a really nice restaurant in New York city and you're like, could you manage this place? They'd be like, absolutely. <laughs> you know? and, and, and it's just like, I think that represents it pretty well. It's like, it's like, you don't know, you know, you've done so well at this job and like, it's kind of one of the, one of the desirable jobs and, and you need to be smart, but it's just totally, you know, so I, I start pursuing this finance thing. Confidence is through the roof and, you know, I'm reading a bunch of books about how to, how to do this stuff. And, um, and you know, one of the, the, the content marketing was becoming a big thing in 2012. And I'm reading these books that are about how to content market. And of course, to sell books, you make it sound easy. Right. And you just make this video and you put it on YouTube and everyone's going to find it and they're all going to buy your stuff. And I ended up, you know, paying 10 grand for three different videos. And, and one of these videos was about how were we going to we were going to find RatePoint's customers. And the CEO of that company, RatePoint, somehow saw it. Like, I don't know how, but he saw it. And somebody sent it to him or something. He emails me and he's like, um, dude, if you try to do what you're going to do, you're going to fail. But if you come see me in Boston, I will tell you a way to where you will succeed with 100% certainty. I was like, man, that is a weird message to get from somebody, but I'm going to Boston. Mm -hmm. So um, turns out this guy, <clears throat> he, he, his whole his whole axe to grind was – uh, his investors, he basically felt his investors pulled the rug out from, from him, like at the, at exactly the wrong time. He's like, I'm onto something here. You know, he had some product issues some deliverability issues, but he's like, dude, just give me another like million bucks and we can get through this and it's going to be a great company. And they were like, nope. And the guy's a serial entrepreneur. He's won five other times. Um, so he was very upset about that and he just wanted to see his vision succeed. So <clears throat> he's like, I'm not going to tell you too much because my partner is starting a data company, but there's a company down the road who I actually got sued by later, so I can't say their name, but there's a company down the road who's a big email marketing company, pioneer in the space, and they're leaving an unbelievable amount of data about their customers all over the internet. Just go find it, build a product that has you know price and performance competitive offer, build a call center. <clears throat> you will get thousands of people to switch over. Don't raise any money, bootstrap it, get a nice cash flowing business and then figure out what's next. So, um, he's like, I know because I literally just did this like a year ago, like it will work. The, not, the world has not changed enough to where this will not work. So that sounded great to me. Um, I mean, how, like when in life, when you literally have no idea what you're doing, does someone give you that clear right. of, of guidance on how to get to a right. positive business? So, um, it turns out this company, unbeknownst to them, was creating a community page for all of their paying customers. And in that URL for the community page, there was an unencrypted six-digit number. And if you scroll that number up by one, it was a dead page. If you scroll it by two, it was the next customer. And that page had first name, last name, business name, and zip code. So we, we got a bunch of like, you know, tour IPs and spidered the thing over months. And collected 225,000 records of people that like we knew were, buy, were were paying for this product. Right. 
Now, did you have a background in in sort of computer stuff or? Oh, luckily. So my brother went to Stanford. He swam with this guy, Tate Blanick, who's still our CTO. And and he's just amazing. You know, he's, he, he swam and he was a computer science guy at Stanford and just, you know, he's, he's awesome. Uh, amazing individual contributor. Got it. Got uh, it. So this guy has been the tech guy forever. And, um, you know, the first time you do things, uh, I mean, I, the, the amount of money that we spent making, the, you know, of course, like my smart internet friend, my brother and I were like, well, let's just have these guys in India who, who we've heard about make it, you know, it'll be 30 grand. It ends up being 70 grand. And then Tate just like, is like, I'm going to have to rewrite the entire thing. Mm-hmm. And the whole time th- these guys who I should have like listened to and respected, um, were like, yeah, told you so, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> never, um, so it getting to V1 of that product took us like 18 months. And I think that's actually not even that bad for a first time sort of effort. Um, but yeah, it took us 18 months and the first month's revenue were like a thousand bucks. Yeah. And did you <laughs> and guys, like, it just makes me so happy because like, you know, the, this, with all of the experience that I've gotten since then, like with the get emails thing, I got the UI built on Upwork based upon photoshops that I made. Uh, Tate spent three weeks on it. We launched it November 1st and had our first month was 11,000. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so know, did you guys like, self, did you guys self fund this? We did, you know, luckily my brother, I mean, it was painful. So the interesting thing about self funding something like this and, and it, you know, the subscription price, the first subscriptions we sold were 15 bucks. And I think this happens to a lot of people who start these small business SaaS, SaaS apps. Um, eventually it got up to like 60 average, but we, we both had kind of this like pile of money that we had said we were going to spend on this and ends up being double that. And I don't take a salary for like three or four years. And the reason why it ended up being double is a, because we were kind of idiots and building the product. And like, I was uneducated and how to like build a sales organization and all that stuff. Um, you know, it came with time, but also once you actually figure the machine out and you're like, okay, I can like find these people here and I can train them and it takes me a week. And then, you know, I have them like, you know, booking demos and closing sales. And on average, they, you know, I put a dollar into this thing and it spits four out or something like that. Um, you know, if that thing is working, you're just kind of going to put all your money into it. Right. <laughs> you know? That's right. Um, and, and especially given the fact that it was a finite lead pool. Um, I mean, <laughs> another story is I actually thought that I had another million leads that were worse than these 200,000, but I still, you know, I did this test and with our three best guys and it looked like it was going to convert. And so the hilarious thing was I did this in this apartment that I was still living in that these guys started Vimeo in. It was like this big loft in Tribeca, you know, it's kind of like, you know, that movie big, like uh-huh. it was a lot like that apartment. Um, and like person by person, I wake up one day and there's 39 people coming to my house making dials, you know, uh-huh. it's ridiculous. Like, um, and I'm ramping the Salesforce because it looks like this next list is 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 going to work, and I need 50 salespeople, and it's you know going to get our business. So we got to like you know I don't know three million in revenues off this strategy. I'm like, great, this is going to get us to six. And if you get a SaaS business to six, 
like this one that has really low churn. Um, and you know, even if you can't grow it from there, if you whack all the sales and marketing operation, you have like a really, really good lifestyle business on your hands, you know, like three is pretty good because it only takes about four or five people to run this. Mm -hmm. Um, if you're not, you know, growing it with, with any sales and marketing, but man, getting it to six would just be, would just be amazing. So <clears throat> that, that didn't happen. You know, we got, we got our entire Salesforce on this thing and it was just abundantly clear that it just wasn't even close to economic to have these people, um, you know, making these calls. And it was just one of these just horrible moments of all of our lives where I had to just like call everybody in a room and be like, okay, if you're listening to me talk right now, you don't have a job anymore because I screwed up, you know, like I totally, um, you know, evaluated this other list of leads wrong and there's no one else for us to call. Yeah. 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 So uh, when you, when you reflect back on that today, what, what are some of the, the thing, what are some of the takeaways for you? What are some of the lessons for you? Man, I, I think, I think like well, that in particular, it's just, Oh, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm going to be much careful, much more careful in the future about evaluating, you know, it's, it's being more certain that the path that I'm see, this wasn't just like, Oh, like I bought a list of, of, you know, 50,000 people. Like I thought we had like a million more people to call. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was getting people to, to like, what breaks my heart the most was this, we had this recruiter who worked for us for two months. I'm selling her. I sold her this dream. She had a great job. She left it. She came to work for us. I literally am sitting across at a coffee shop from this girl, like six months later, I'm like, like I have nothing. Like I messed this up so bad. Yeah. Like, you know, like it's, it's very disruptive. She was an Australian citizen and messed her visa stuff up, you know? Right. Um, so I mean, a lot of the other Gosh. people were, were, you know, most of the salespeople we were hiring were like first job out of college. So at any other startup in New York at that time, there were so many SDR operations like Yelp and that's who, right. Whoever. Yeah. ZocDoc, all that stuff. They absorb all those people up so quickly, but man, at a certain level, people are really buying into you to make that career choice. So like have to turn so quickly. Um, it's just, man, I don't know. And, and I have done whatever I can. I have gotten that girl several jobs since then. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, it's just, it was just hard. So from that one, um, I mean, it, it, it's hard to even describe the amount of lessons and experience that come out of, a journey like that. You know, the most interesting thing to me was, and, and you don't really realize it until after it happens is like, that was an amazing, uh, product and product plus sales and marketing for that channel. No one else was calling those people. No one else was calling those people that pitch. And unfortunately the product that we were selling against was not the best product in the market at all. Like MailChimp is just so much better. It's free, you know? So, we had created this, this business around a, a, a product that really wasn't competitive in the real world, you know? So for the next few years, I was trying to figure out how to make it competitive. Um, but that was, you know, of the things going into it, 
that I wish I would have emphasized more. Like, man, product is just, especially in this, and it, every day it gets more important. Yeah. But product versus sales and marketing. It's like, I just, we only had, Tate was the only guy building for, for two and a half years. Yeah. Didn't have a single other engineer. Yeah. Um, it's just the idea of that to me is, is insane now. Um, and like, I didn't really understand product market fit. And I, you know, I, I, I should have had, you know, it would have been much more savvy as an entrepreneur of me to have realized, even if that list of a million people worked, right? I should have been the entire time, instead of waiting till after it died, I should have been messing around with other channels and other features and other ways to enhance the product so that when we emerged from that, we had a viable growth path. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's just not fair. It's just not fair to the employee. And look, my first employees, they all still work for us. We totally shifted gears from this like, oh, this is this crazy explosive growth thing where like you walk in and there's another five people in the office every day to like, you know, after we realized we were kind of stuck until I figured something else out, we went remote. Everybody started traveling a bunch. Uh, this this girl who's basically our like general manager um, of everything while I was trying to figure out what the next step was. Um, she and her husband, they, they bought an RV and for 18 months they were like RVing around America, <laughs> the US and Mexico. You know, so it turned from this like one really exciting thing in one way to this thing where, you know, basically everybody that was still around was achieving these like, you know, retirement level lifestyle goals while still not really making huge professional sacrifices. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, which I feel good about. I mean, I, you know, it, it sucks to, you know, you're not lying to people when you get something wrong like that to start up. I was inexperienced or whatever, but, um, I, I really do love the fact that like, and I'm doing, I'm doing it too. I mean, I was, I left New York in 2017, basically tr- had only had a suitcase for a year or sorry, two years. Um, started spending the winters at ski mountains and the summer surfing. And then finally like met a girl moved to Austin in May. Um, but yeah, um, it's, it's just been an interesting journey. Yeah. So early on uh, in this conversation, you were talking about, you know, working in the finance industry and when you have success there, sometimes you end up with an, uh, let me call it an overabundance of self-confidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, what role do you think that played in, in sort of this journey? Oh man, I think it was so helpful early on just because it's almost like if you knew how hard it was, yeah, <laughs> it would, it would be a deterrent, you know? Um, but kind of ignorance plus overconfidence really got me ferociously moving towards goals, you know, however dumb they were, right? Yes. Like, uh, so I think that overconfidence, uh, you know, this certainly isn't me, but just based upon other people that I've listened to and behavior that I've observed and, you know, kind of insecurities that people have about doing stuff like uh, initial momentum ten- seems like it's a huge problem for people. That wasn't a problem for me at all. Yeah. You know, uh, and, and I think it was a lot of it was just because I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm going to crush this. Like, what? <laughs> of course, I'm going to. You right. Know? Right. Um, and then, you know, fast forward in this getting emails thing feels pretty good right now. But like after that Robley thing stalled out, I was banging my head against the wall, trying all sorts of stuff, trying to get it to grow again for like two and a half or three years. And it was like almost the opposite state, just like 
I feel like an incompetent entrepreneur because like nothing like I, I took three big swings at three totally different things that basically wasted three years in a row that just didn't work, you know? Um, but I mean, that's the nature of the game. That's you know? right. That's right. And I, I think people need to realize that, right? This is, yeah. this is, you, you take a lot of swings and, uh, you miss a lot of balls, uh, yeah. but that's part of the learning process. And, and, totally. and hopefully from each one of those, you learn something and you get better and, uh, eventually you're going to start hitting, you're going to start hitting them. Yeah. And, and it, and big misses make you both realize and appreciate something when it's actually working, you know? Right. Right. Um, exactly. Cause it's just, the misses are just like, it's like so much effort until you abandon them. Um, and then something comes along. It's like, wow, like these people are pulling this out of us. Yeah. <laughs> like we're not having to push too hard at all, you know? Right. Right. So Adam, is there, uh, is there like a history of entrepreneurship or small business ownership, starting small businesses in your family, your parents stuff? No, not really. My, my, my dad was a, an oil trader, but my brother was very entrepreneurial his whole life. He's 15 months older than me. No, we're very close. Like kind mm-hmm. of Irish twins. And he started, so my brother is kind of just like, uh, how do I say this? He, like, I've been pretty financially conservative my whole life. You know, I don't really like credit cards, don't like debt, stuff like that. Like my brother's just like all about it. You know, college is like, Oh, they give me credit cards. Like just, you know, <laughs> doing whatever he can. He's just, he was a spender and he's not out of control anymore, but he had this job and it, you know, he, he went and worked for his girlfriend's dad in this weird industry. And, um, you know, refurbishing circuit breakers, the right. guy at Stanford, the, the guy at Stanford, they don't normally take that. <laughs> right. Path. Right. Right. Um, and then after, so he like, I don't think, I don't think he knew he had to pay taxes. He like literally like got this cool apartment and bought a brand new Tahoe. And that was basically his salary. And after a year, he, he asked the guy for a raise and the guy's like, well, no. And so he just went and started the same guy, the, the, the same company as the guy had, but he used the internet and he was the first guy to use it in the space. And he just killed it, like sold half of it to private equity five years later. And, you know, I did really well. Uh, And a combination of sort of seeing him do that, like watching it build over the years, like and and being so close to these college humor guys, like I I got I mean, it was just clear that they were getting so much more out of their lives than me sitting at that desk, taking money out of the system. That that's really fun. It's fun to gamble, especially when you're winning. Great group of guys, you know. Just the 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 at that time in 2003, the the level of talent that these banks were getting, it was just awesome. Yeah, great but, environment to be around. Yeah, um, but but you know, the whole time it's just like the the, and I don't even think I identified it as being creative or building, but I was just like there's something that these guys are doing that is just very different than, than like, I don't know, call it like the end game of trading. You know, if you're like in your mid twenties, everybody we used to sit around and be like, oh, I'm going to make 10 million bucks and then go sit on the beach. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and then I made like a few million and then went and sit on the beach. And I'm like, wow, this really sucks. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is like, not, this is like not fun at all. You know, um, which, which was also a really interesting experience to go through before starting a company because I think it, 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 it totally changed my goals. You know, I think if I were, hadn't, hadn't taken some time and just done nothing, um, 
I would be much more focused on like, oh, I need to like start something to sell and the goals would be money oriented. Now it's like, man, like how do I stay alive a long time and how do I have interesting stuff to work on with people that I like? Yeah, well, when you keep that going as long as possible. Yeah, when you're in the finance industry or certain parts of the finance industry, the only goal is to make money. A thousand percent. Right, that's it. That's the only goal for 98% of the people. Yeah. Whereas in other, you know, in other sort of endeavors, uh, there are additional goals <laughs> besides just making money. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. So, yeah, I mean, I, and I think that the, and I know several founders that are kind of in this, in this mental state about money. It's like, look, like I've luckily created this one thing that's paying my bills. I don't really have to worry about it. Um, and there is a financial goal somewhere deep in the horizon but on a day-to-day basis, like I'm not thinking about money at all. Right. Like that's nothing to do with, it's like, how do I explain the value of this product to, to this buyer avatar? Like that's a hundred percent of my thought. I don't look at the stock market. Like I don't think about any of it, you know, um, which it's, I enjoy for my temperament. I enjoy playing this game much more than I did trading. It was a bit stressful. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. So, uh, <laughs> If you know the audience for this uh, uh, podcast is is you know uh, entrepreneurs, business people, etc., and um, if you were going to give them three pieces of advice on you know what you have learned along your journey, what would those three pieces of advice be? Um, what what stage, generally speaking, like is it? Are, are we talking about people who are just getting started, or like what? I mean, oh, it's all over the map. All over the map. It's all over okay, the map. So what? So, and the listeners are all over the the world. Right. Okay. I think one of the biggest things, I don't know where I got this idea, but I think one of the biggest misconceptions about this entire thing that I had going in is that I could build great systems and I wouldn't need great people if I did that. I don't know where I got that idea from, but I would say that is like the most wrong thing that has ever come out of my mouth. Um, like just the, 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 the difference between somebody who is great at the job they're doing and someone who's average at the job they're doing and the, the the way that compounds over years, you know, the, the speed at which someone who's great is moving it forward as they're doing their tasks, you know? Um, I mean, you just got to get the best people you can, you know? And, if you make a wrong hiring decision, cut them as quickly as possible. Um, that that that's a hard thing for for fresh entrepreneurs too, sure. especially if you hadn't managed people. Like my previous job, I never interviewed anybody. I mean, you're just sitting in front of the screen, and it's like if you if you lose money, you're fired. If you make money, you get paid tons of money, and you have two management conversations per year, and that's it. You know, um, so that was all uh, really interesting. Um, I think. A great piece. So, this isn't. Um, if you haven't read the Y Combinator, uh, like blog posts in their library, mm-hmm. I would highly encourage anyone in the startup game, especially early stage, to do that because I think that they're. So, <clears throat> if there's two approaches to how you're supposed to start a company, like I really got sold the first time around, and, and I think it's easy to get sold the first time around on this vision when you did what I did and you worked in one of these tall glass buildings for 10 years on this, I'll call it the like 37 signals and Tim Ferriss, uh, 
view of the world, which is like, you can have a great small company, make a lifestyle business out of it. And you know, this is the, the new rich, this is what everybody wants. They want to be able to be anywhere, you know, plug in and out of this thing. And you know, you can basically, you know, live this life of the, the, the digital nomad. I really got told on that. I, I think that a more, um, satisfying track is this Y Combinator attitude. And it's not, you know, you don't need Airbnb or whatever, but just this attitude where, you know, they're literally like growth solves all problems. And that doesn't mean raise a bunch of money and grow at all costs. Mm -hmm. That means make a product that is so good that it will grow on itself, have weekly growth goals. If you're not hitting them, figure out how to hit them. Um, you know, really have your, your focus, um, on creating, you know, doing, doing what doesn't scale and creating these experiences for these different user types that are just so good that it grows on its own. And I'm really, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do it with this, with get emails. You know, I'm trying to have this Y Combinator attitude rather than, um, the 37 signals attitude, not that there's anything wrong with it. The 37 signals attitude works wonderfully. Uh, it's, it's given all our employees a great life the last few years. Um, but you know, I'm just more excited by this white commentary yeah. thing. <clears throat> yeah. Well, you know, there's a lot of different views on, on, on the various <clears throat> different ways of doing this stuff. And, and, uh, I think that's actually good because some work for some people in some businesses and others work for other people in other businesses. So totally. And I think the, the, the stage in your life you're at too, it, it, it can just be that's your right. goals can change so much based upon your prior experiences and what you need at that time. Absolutely. You know? That's a, that's a super good point, right? It is that your stage of your life and where you are in your own world, uh, often, often, uh, can significantly impact what you're trying to achieve. Right. Yeah. Super. Hey, so we've been talking for uh, 40 minutes here. Plus, uh, I want to wrap it up and respect your time. Uh, so is there anything that uh, I didn't ask you that I should have or anything else you want to cover here? Man, I think I think we did it all. Oh, good. Good. Well, thank you very much. Very good Adam. interview. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you very much. It was really good. It was a pleasure to chat with you and to get to get to know you. And uh, it, you've really had an interesting journey. And I think you've uh, shared uh, a lot of... Uh, good things and a lot of heartfelt things with our listeners. So I really appreciate that. Thank you very much for having me on. You betcha. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Great interview, Bela, and really important stuff. I mean, email and marketing and customer engagement is really a critical component uh, that entrepreneurs, especially in the e-commerce space, really need to focus on. Um, and it's fun to talk about this, these kind of issues of data protection and things like privacy and things like this. I mean, you're in the U.S. and I'm now in Europe where GDPR is the law. And by the way, GDPR stands for General Data Protection Regulation. All good uh, business professors in, in uh, Germany know this. Um, and it's there's really some very unique differences between how I would say typical Germans and typical Americans um, perceive the need for privacy and data security. So there's definitely some cultural differences going on here. So this product is only uh, able to be sold in the U.S., Right. Um, what's your uh, that's take? correct. Yeah. Yeah. What's your take, Bela, on this? Um, how do you see the role of email marketing and how do startups need to engage their customers? And where do you see the market for a product um, like what Adam has designed and developed in the selling? So I'll tell you that um, I'm hopeful that these uh, email marketing uh, 
products and the sort of ads that I get served when I'm surfing the web, uh, I hope that they get better. Uh, because I-, I tell you that my experience is <clears throat> they're pretty good at figuring out what ads to send me, and, but they're not <clears throat> really very good at figuring out when to stop sending those ads to me, right? So for example, if I'm, if I'm uh, you know, click on something and because uh, I'm interested in it, and then all of a sudden for the next two, three months, I keep getting ads or emails uh, about uh, that product. I, I tell you, after I buy that product or after I decide not to buy it, then those emails are annoying, so I think the, 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 the improvement here needs to be uh, some technology that helps them figure out how to turn it off, right? Um, they all know how to turn it on. <laughs> they have figured out real clever ways of, of tracking all of us when we're on the web one way or another uh, and then sending us stuff, uh, whether it be an email or whether it be a pop-up ad or whatever. Uh, but I think they haven't figured out a good way of turning it off. And uh, to me, that's the next big step that I think will move this forward in a very positive way, quite honestly. What do you think, yeah, Mike? Yeah. Well, you know, email still is relevant to some portion of the of the public. I think that, um, you know, more and more people are communicating through apps, Facebook Messenger and WhatsApp and things like this and text messages. Um, but I do think that there's a role for, for email. And I do think there's a role for good, really good, useful, valuable email marketing. But yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, Bela. Let's use AI and machine learning to figure out when we shouldn't sell, when we turn customers off, because I know that customers get turned off. And, you know, I tell this story in my, in my class all the time um, when we're talking about the kind of the strategies of, of using um, ads and, and Google AdWords and, and Facebook ads and things like this. So, you know, when I'm, um, I, um, my students have a hard time with this, but like I buy underwear, right? When my underwear wears out, I like to buy new underwear and I buy like very conservative underwear. Okay. But when I go and shop and I get the ads that show up on my screen when I'm teaching, right? It's not just for the boxer shorts that I buy, the old guy boxer shorts. It's for thongs and exciting underwear styles that I don't wear, okay? And it's on the big screen in the classroom, right in front of 150 students, okay? It's got to be smart enough to know that when it's in projector mode, please don't serve me ads, right? Especially for underwear, okay? (laughs) Oh, that's hilarious. It's true. It's absolutely true. And I'm like... I don't do anything like radical, right? I'm like this straight-laced old guy, right? But this stuff happens. But I totally agree. And it's kind of a funny illustration. It's not exactly um, uh, the right example. But yeah, I think more and more, I think that software can tell, AI and machine learning can start to tell when we get turned off by these things, when our click rates start to go. And the same with, with phone you know this this you have a big issue in the US with phone spam right and text message right. spam that right. clearly somebody's clicking on these things right somebody's responding to right. these things otherwise they wouldn't do it but it's a question of where's the return um, and where's this yeah. this inflection point and it would be great if some companies could really specialize in that i agree but yeah. hey he found yeah. a niche he took a really cool idea and he made it to a company i don't want to I don't, and I think there is real value for for especially small businesses to be able to have um, the information they need on their customers to to win business and to keep business. Yeah. So I thought it was a yeah, cool well, concept. He's, move, 
he's moving <clears throat> excuse me he's moving the the you know old uh mail order lists that you used to buy or the email list that you buy many of which things are are aged uh, and he's doing current stuff. So he's sort of moving the ball in a direction we're just talking about, right? Yep. So he's he's providing the service that says, hey, uh, Mike was shopping for underwear yesterday. <laughs> so it might be important to send him ads today, uh, as opposed to some of the things that happened where, you know, you were shopping for those boxer shorts six months ago. And, there, and because someone just bought an aged list, now they start sending you that stuff. Right. So I think he, he he's compressing the time, uh, which is good. Um, and I, I think that's a, a, a good value add. And, uh, you know, look, all this stuff's going to continue uh, it, and people will figure out how to do it. And uh, I think if, if companies figure out how to do it more effectively, uh, that's good for me as a consumer because I'm getting more things that I'm interested in. And it's good for the companies because my click rates are going to go up. Or the yeah. or, or you know my my uh, tendency to purchase something is going to go up. So I think it's a win-win for all parties. Uh, so I, I sort of like what he's doing. I, it's a nice little niche he's found. Uh, and here again, one of the great messages is there's there's lots and lots of these little niches that you can find in business, and you can make yourself a really nice little business out of it. Right? I mean, just look at some of the people we've interviewed here. You know, guys roasting coffee in their garage, uh, house painting folks, right? Some of these are really small little niche businesses, uh, but, you know, they're doing quite well and they're quite happy and they're enjoying life. Uh, so that's the beauty, I think, of, of this kind of digital uh, era that uh, we can find these niches and, and you can uh, mine that niche and turn it into a nice little business. Yeah, this leads to some of the things Adam was saying at the end when he was talking about kind of the the uh, the Y Combinator approach when it's okay should you should you target a lifestyle business that you can just run and be happy or should you go for growth at all costs kind of and really work to to reach some financial targets um, that are measurable and actionable what do you think uh, do you have to make a choice of one or the other can you uh, uh, attack both goals at the same time where do you kind of see uh, fitting in on this. And like when you were in the VC side of things, how would you assess kind of what the entrepreneurs were interested in and how do you guide them um, through these types of choices? Well, as, as if I put my VC hat on, uh, as, as a VC, you're only interested in growth businesses. <clears throat> VCs have zero interest in lifestyle businesses. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we would try to ferret out is, you know, <clears throat> does this person really driven towards a growth business, building the business really big, because fundamentally that's the only way the VCs generate a return, uh, which is the primary thing they're interested in. Uh, however, when I think about it from the entrepreneur's perspective, uh, I don't think there's one right answer. And as a matter of fact, the answer may change with time. You may start it out as a lifestyle business and, and it grows really well on its own, organically. And, and all of a sudden you find yourself with a, a, a growth business um, or, you know, you may start out saying, hey, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to raise 20 million in venture capital. I'm going to take this thing public. And after a year or two, you're sort of enjoying how it's going and you're quite happy and you haven't raised any money yet except from maybe friends and family. And you say, you know what, I'm going to continue doing it this way. So 
I think the beauty here is that this is very much up to the entrepreneur. It's up to sort of what you want. What do you want out of your business? What do you want out of your life? Uh, Where are your goals? And align those carefully. So don't let one person push you in one direction or another, or don't let the the herd that you're walking with push you in one direction or another. Um, Do what's right for you. That's my thoughts on it. How about you, Mike? Yeah. I mean, I'm working with a couple of different startups right now, and they're struggling with this decision. Um, You know, do you follow the Y Combinator model of growth at all costs and just do it, do it, do it, push, push, push? Or do you do the kind of the 37 signals model, which is like, hey, uh, you know, I want to I want to do it my way. And if it works, it works. And it's hard to give people an answer. It really depends on kind of what their goals are. But you know, I really like what you just said, Bela, and I think that there is a way that you can say, look, I'm, if I really want to run the type of business that I have in my vision, um, that I've kind of envisioned myself running and, and something that's um, comfortable and makes me really happy, go for that. And if you hit growth, that's great. And if you don't hit growth, that's okay too. Um, but I think that there's a lot of uh, incubators and accelerators that use the kind of the Y Combinator approach and say, yeah, let's get you on the fast track for growth and set really high targets. And if that fits your personality, great. Uh, There's plenty of resources there. I think there are actually fewer resources for lifestyle business people. I think there are fewer resources out there because VCs aren't interested, because accelerators and incubators aren't interested. And it's harder for those people. And that's where personal networking that we've talked about a lot of time, finding peers that are willing to mentor you, um, relying on community resources, either through the local small business development association or the economic development um, operation in where you live uh, or academics, right? Things like that are better fits in terms of getting help for, for life's more people who are interested in more of a lifestyle business. So yeah, I think it's figuring out what, where you're going to do best. And then the challenge is identifying the resources that are lined up with the choice that, that you make. Yeah. And I think you said that well, Mike, in that, um, oftentimes it's your network that's actually going to provide you with the greatest value, um, or your extended network. Let me say it that way. That's going to provide you with the greatest value in giving you some guidance and coaching um, along the way. Because uh, you have to remember that, uh, you know, Y Combinator or incubators or VCs, uh, they all sort of go down this high growth path <clears throat> because that's best for their business. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that may not be best for your business, <laughs> mm-hmm. but that's how their business works. So uh, that's why they push that. And, and not being critical of that, I mean, that's great and that's fine and it works very well. Um, but my point is that that's best for them. It may not be best for you. Well, and that's where finding your sources of capital are really important, where if it's a lifestyle business, it might be friends and family or a small business association uh, backed loan, um, maybe an angel investor, right? But it's not going to be the VC model. That's right. Because if you take money from a VC, you're on a certain set of train tracks and you're heading down this road. And- yep. um, you know, so you have to you have to really understand that well. When you depending on who you take capital from, it may define your path, and it may not give you many options along that path. So that's a real important critical thing to think about. Cool. The other point that I thought was really interesting, Bela, was this idea about you're creating financial value, right? And and Adam was you know he had very clear goals to create financial value, but he also had very clear goals on how he wanted to create non-financial value. So value for his employees or value for his customers. And, you know, I like that he tied the mistakes that he made um, and successes 
to not only his own net worth or the balance sheet and income statement of the company or his cash balance, uh, but also to the lives of his customers and the lives of his employees. And kind of the story he told about having to you know, lay people off and how that really uh, affected him because he made a mistake. I thought it was awesome. Um, and those are really great ways to think about how, what type of business you want to run, how you want to run your business. Um, and this, I think, was a really cool way to think about the value of an organization, the value of a startup, the value of a small business. What types of conversations conversations about these types of decisions have you had, both when you're coaching startups and when you're evaluating startups as kind of from a VC standpoint? So I think one of the most important things <clears throat> that Adam said was that um, he, he, when he made a mistake, he admitted it and he stepped up to the plate and said, hey, I screwed up. I'm sorry. And, um, you know, here's what I'm doing to try to fix it. Here's what I'm doing so I don't repeat that error uh, or I don't repeat that mistake. And I think that's one of the key things that I, I try to emulate myself and I try to get uh, others to do as well when I'm, when I'm having these conversations with them. We all make mistakes. Uh, and we all, we all in, in hindsight, could have done something different, could have done something better. And... Um, and, and, and when you're an entrepreneur and you're a founder and you're running a business, you know, the decisions you make have impacts on lots of people's lives. And oftentimes you, you, you don't realize that. I, I remember one of the, one of the people uh, that I worked for, uh, I think it was at IBM, and, and I got promoted and I was, I was running a, a, a fairly significant uh, organization of um, 100 people or so. And, and my boss uh, once was having a counseling session with me and he said, remember Bela, uh, when, when the hundred people that are in your organization go home at night, uh, you're probably the topic of dinner conversations at maybe 10 or 15 dinners that evening <laughs> and what you did. So you do have an impact and that really hit me, right? It was like, mm -hmm. oh my gosh, right? Things that I'm doing at work and things that I'm saying and things that I'm, um, uh, decisions I'm making are impacting these folks' lives. And um, I think that's something that uh, we all need to think about, right? Even in the classroom, right? We, we do something in the classroom, and, and, all, and sometimes you do something, um, and it comes out of your mouth, not how it was intended, and you see the reaction of the students, right? And then, okay, you got you to gotta pedal back. You got you to gotta say, okay, let's try to redo that. Let's try to, let me try to say that over again in, in how I intended it. And I thought that was one of the things that struck me about Adam, right? He was really open about that, and he was, he, was, he was really sincere about it. And I think that's an important virtue to have. Yeah, one of the ways to enact that, and I learned this as a 22-year-old when I was working in Boston. Uh, I was a shift supervisor at a homeless shelter. And 22, and the man who was my assistant um, was in his late 50s at the time, Rudy Hightower. And uh, at first, it didn't seem like we'd get along. You know, he didn't go to college and, he, you know, we didn't have really anything at the surface in common. Uh, and we really bonded and he really taught me a lot. And one of the things he taught me was the value of a sincere apology. And he actually mm, coached yeah. me and mentored me in how to apologize um, and mean it. 
Uh, and that was a lesson that stuck through me through all the jobs that I had and grad school and being a professor and doing consulting is really how to say, you know what, look, I screwed that up. I'm sorry. I'm going to make sure that doesn't happen again. And I really want to do my best to make, to make this right. Right. Even and sometimes you have to say, Hey, I'm really sorry. And I know I can't fix this. Right. So, you know, that's something that if you're kind of working on this and being transparent and genuine is I think, you know, A, you really have to mean you're sorry. But so many people say, "Mm, I'm sorry if that came across the wrong way. No, I'm sorry I said it, right? Or I'm sorry if you misunderstood that. That's not an apology. That's blaming the other person, right? So I think this, uh, this craft of really, A, you have to be contrite and you have to be sorry, but B, being able to communicate that you are sorry effectively and what you're going to do to try to fix it if possible is really, really a critical skill for not only for entrepreneurs, but all managers. And I'm, you know, I've screwed up a lot of things in my life, right? And I think the ability to apologize has been something that's allowed me to step forward rather than step back and allowed me to overcome some of the hurdles that I created for myself in my life. Um, so I think that that's, that's a neat way to take what Adam said and to work it into your day to day, which is next time you screw something up, really rehearse and practice and script it out and then go deliver a sincere and meaningful apology. Um, and I think that you'll see that actually sometimes when you screw up, it's not that you screwed up, it's how you handled it. And people can actually think more highly of you after the fact, because, wow, you know, Wasserman screwed that up, but you know what? He really handled that well. I was really surprised, and I really feel okay about the whole situation, you know? So I think that that's, that's a neat way to operationalize that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Great example. All right, let's wrap Great it up, example. huh? Sounds good. Okay, so we really talked about some interesting things today with Adam and heard about how he's built this kind of from a niche business into something that really has potential to be powerful. Uh, We talked about the idea of kind of lifestyle versus high growth businesses and how you deal with that. And we talked about the idea of being humble and humility and thinking about uh, value, not just from the financial standpoint, because that's important, but also from the impact that you have on the lives of your customers, your employees, your your. Uh, suppliers, um, the community in which you operate in. So I think that's uh, three great takeaways and a great interview, Bela. What do you think? I agree. I agree. It was uh, it was a good conversation with, uh, with uh, Adam, and I really enjoyed it. All right. Thanks for setting it up. Listeners, we're happy that you joined us in our podcasting adventure for this week, and we hope that you found the last hour interesting and thought-provoking. At this point, we'd like to once again thank Phillips Lytle for sponsoring our podcast. Bela, you and I both know that the attorneys at Philip Lytle think like entrepreneurs, taking a pragmatic approach to getting things done and spotting issues before they become problems. If you need good, solid advice starting, funding, or selling a business, whether you're a single-person startup or working on a nine-figure exit, Bela and I can confidently recommend the attorneys at Philip Lytle. Bela, what's the best way for listeners to get in touch with them? Yeah, so the main guy to get in touch with is Rich Honan. Uh, he's a partner there at Phillips Lytle, and uh, you can reach him on his telephone, which is 518-618-1225, or you can get a hold of Rich uh, from the firm's website, which is phillipslytle.com. That's P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S-L-Y-T-L-E.com. Thanks for joining us this week. If you have questions about what we've discussed today, suggestions about future topics or potential guests, please do get in touch with us. We're happy to hear from you, and we will respond. Our email is bela.and.mike at gmail.com. Hey, and please do subscribe if you haven't already. We have lots of great guests in the pipeline. So until next week, signing off 
signing off from upstate New York. Have a great week, Mike. Thanks, Bella. And from over here in Münster, Germany, where GDPR is the law of the land. Thanks and see you next week.